Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Uh, my name is Brad. If you're a guest, so glad that you're here today. One of the pastors at Fellowship Church. And we are in the season of Advent. And even if you uh, maybe are new here for the very first time, you're a guest or you've missed the last couple of weeks, out in the uh, lobby area at the Gather, Grow, Serve area is our Advent Christmas at Fellowship Guide. Even though uh, there's just a week left, don't feel afraid that you can't jump in now. And so there's devotionals for individuals, but also for families. And if you follow us on Facebook, you know that the Rabies have an adventurous time with the family uh, version of that devotional. Uh, I also want to say this morning, thank you for being the kind of church that lets uh, your pastors get away every now and then. So last uh, this past week, Julie and I got away to celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary, so that was exciting. And it also was the second anniversary of my time here with you guys. And uh, so I've been praying that the Lord would give us several more of those anniversaries together. So Advent, uh, this season, this Advent season, we've been camped out in Isaiah, particularly chapter 9 verse 6. And uh, the word Advent uh, comes from Latin. It means to wait and to longingly wait. There's an implied sense of angst in the waiting, if you will. And if you have young children like my wife and I do, we have four in the single digit category demographically. You might understand what I mean that uh, a couple of three weeks ago, we were waiting with great angst to get away from them for three weeks or so. They'd be doing crazy stuff, running around like maniacs in our house, and we'd look over at each other and say, two weeks, sweetheart. Then another week would go by, and one of them would punch one of them in the face, and it'd be a whole issue, and we'd look at them and say, one more week, baby. Then we got about 76 hours from kind of go time, and things, you know, they wouldn't want to eat their supper or whatever, and we'd just kind of look and say, this time, 76 hours from now. And then, like, we got... Like a day beforehand, and my dad sends me a text message and says, what time do me and mom need to be there? And I'm, I responded, what time do you wake up in the morning? <laughs> so just like, just go ahead, just have this come on over. We were waiting with angst for that moment to be able to get away. Julie, you probably uh, understand what I'm talking about. Julie, uh, Hanks, when, when Aaron's gone for a long time and you've got the kids and you, he's going to come home from work, you just can't wait. Like, you know, there's no mistaking. When does the plane get in? You know when it's going to get there because you're waiting and you're longing. And Isaiah, when you're reading through Isaiah, you're reading the prophet talk to a group of people who are waiting with a lot of angst. Their, their times are dark. They seem hopeless, but they know of the promise of Messiah that is to come. And they've been waiting and longing with angst for the Messiah to come. Now, if I were to, to write a book or a commentary about Isaiah, I think I would title it The Gospel of Isaiah. You can't help but read Isaiah and just see so much about Jesus and so much about the Messiah. The pervasive theme through Isaiah is that hope is going to come to the hopeless, that light is going to dawn and overcome the darkness, that evil and evildoers will be vanquished and things will be made right again. And it's all going to happen in and through the coming Messiah. And Isaiah, the prophet, he writes about this coming Messiah we know to be Jesus with great detail, and he does so several hundred years before Joseph and Mary even enter into Bethlehem. And in this famous portion that we've been looking at this month, uh, he so majestically writes 
and describes the kind of Messiah that is coming. Kyle's already talked about a couple of them, that the Messiah, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. That is, he is so wonderful, awe-filled, lofty, and extraordinary, and at the same time, Alpha and Omega, the wise Messiah, wise he's coming, the mighty God, the, this kind of military term that this great defender of his people will come and destroy any enemy in his wake, and he will be there to protect his people. And then today, we're going to look at the third descriptor in the verse that we've seen on the video. You see it on the screen now that he is everlasting father. Now, I don't know of a more emotionally charged word than that of father. It rarely produces neutral emotion. For some of us in the room today, the word father kind of washes over us like a warm fire or warm blanket. It's comforting. It brings such positive feelings. But for others of us, though, it might bring uh, up a sense of disappointment, longing, maybe even bitterness. I find this to be most evident, most visceral, if you will, at weddings, or at least in the uh, leading up to wedding, maybe in the premarital counseling. Uh, Sometimes you see the profound effect of a father during the father-daughter dance at a wedding. A few months ago, uh, I was um, at a wedding, getting ready. The ceremony was like 30 minutes away, and a knock came at the door. And I was in the back with the groomsmen and the groom, and they said, uh, Mr. Mr. Raby, the bride would like to see you. And uh, I, th- I just assumed that she wanted to double-check maybe some details in the ceremony. M- maybe she wanted to change something. Maybe she wanted a different scripture verse read or just wanted to double-check on how things were going to be ordered. But when I got there, I realized that wasn't the case. I got to where they had stashed the bride away, and I built a good relationship with the groom and bride, and I come to find out she just wanted to talk. And she was a little nervous, a little giddy. I mean, she didn't have cold feet, but she was just kind of anxious. And so we talked about how pretty she looked in her dress. And we made jokes about the wedding and not tripping down the aisle. And then we prayed together. And it was really sweet. It was, uh, it was a precious moment. But I, I dawned, it dawned on me after that kind of what happened. A... Uh, if you lose enough hair and you get enough gray coming in, you, you're older and all of a sudden young adults look at you in a different way. Uh, and B, I, I was doing what her dad should have been doing. But the backstory was is her dad had been absent most of her life. And inside of her that day, that morning, is something that is inside of all of us. A desire for security a desire for comfort and care, good and right things, things that we certainly look to in our mothers, certainly our fathers. We are created in the image of God, and these longings are there for us. We desire affirmation. We desire direction. We desire love. We were created this way, imprinted into our life. We bear the image of God who Isaiah aptly describes as everlasting father. And I think God as everlasting father, Jesus as everlasting father is incredibly important. And I want to show us why in scripture today. Now, to be absolutely clear, this passage, Isaiah 9, 6, is talking about Jesus. Now, I don't know if you read it, maybe just kind of at a first glance, the, the idea that a child is given, a son is born, and his name's going to be called father. That seems odd. But what Isaiah is saying here, he's describing 
the kind of Messiah that is going to be born, that Jesus is going to be fatherly. He's describing what kind of dad he's going to be to his people. It's also important to understand that the word everlasting is used in the same way the word wonderful and the way the word mighty are used. They're both adjectives describing something. In other words, what Isaiah is doing when he says the Messiah will be called everlasting father is he's not trying to tell us that God is eternal. Though he is, that's not his point here. He's not saying that God's eternal being, but rather what he's saying is Jesus fathers his people eternally, or Jesus fathers them forever. It's qualifying the kind of dad he is. You might say, if you wanted to paraphrase, that you could say everlasting father means that he is a forever father. In other words, there is no need to fear. This dad is never going to leave that this family can rest in the security that dad will always show up. He will not leave his family. He will not leave his children. He will always be there. Now, this is meaningful. I, I had a father. who I have a father who's been present in my life. But uh, as most of you know, Julie and I adopted children who that's not been the case. And we've discovered something just in the recent months. They have become obsessed with Toy Story particularly Toy Story 3. If you haven't seen Toy Story 3, it's been out for a long time, so don't complain about spoilers. But in the, in, at the end of Toy Story 3, there is this kind of thematic crescendo moment where Andy is letting the little girl who's going to have his toys know that they will always be there for you. They'll be your friends forever. My kids quote lots of Disney movies they think that are funny, but Drew particularly has latched on to this concept that a family might be together forever. And so he'll grab me in the face and he'll say, Daddy, I'll remember you forever. Or he'll tell his mom, Mom, you'll never forget me. Or the other day, Drew and Cato had been separate. They're twins and they are like at the hip. And Julie had had Cato for about three or four hours, and I'd had Drew, and Drew looked at me and said, Cato will never forget me. Now, after their fifth or sixth time that he's quoting that movie and talking about this idea that family is together forever, you realize that there's something that's going on inside of him, and he is latched onto this notion that a dad and mom might be there for him forever. And that's exactly what Isaiah is trying to say here is that this is a father who fathers forever. Now, when you read the scripture, certainly when you teach the scripture, it's important that we don't read our experiences into the context. What we need to do is try to understand what Isaiah meant as, as if we were his original audience. In other words, how did they hear this the very first time they heard it? When a young, struggling Israelite or a captive in Judah would have heard this, what did it mean to them to hear that the Messiah was going to be an everlasting or forever father? Now, this isn't too much of a stretch for us. We, we kind of get that in, in our own American sense. For example, when you hear or you read these words, give me liberty or give me death, or 
We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that are, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Or, maybe this one, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. When you hear those words or read those words, you understand the context of Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln. Like they are not just words in a vacuum. They are words that have a lot of meaning because of the context to which they were said. And so for us to fully feel the weight of Messiah's everlasting father, we have to think to ourselves, what did that, how did that land to this audience? So I want us to look at a passage today that would have been absolutely familiar to Isaiah's audience. That they probably, if they'd gathered around a fire and had family devotions, they probably might have sang this psalm or read this together. Matter of fact, it was written by King David. The same King David, if you were to go one more verse in Isaiah 9 to Isaiah 9, 7, is referenced there. This is one of the patriarchs, and we find uh, these words in Psalm 103. So if you've got your Bible or uh, the scripture on your device, Psalm 103, if you don't have either of those Do not fret. We will have them on the screen behind me. I want you to read these words with me or listen to these words and imagine yourself as an enslaved uh, Hebrew longing for a Messiah. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known to his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. There is so much just in these verses, but I just want to highlight really quickly three things for us to take away today. And that is that when these people heard forever father, everlasting father, they would have understood that to mean that God is forever familiar with us, forever loving toward us and forever forgiving of us. So just a few moments on this idea that God is forever familiar of us. Here's what David says in verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I love the way some other translations put it. They say that he knows what we are made of or he remembers how we are formed. If David was alive today and he was writing this, he might say something like this, that God, as your father, understands the very intricacy of your DNA, 
that he knows every single one of the hundred trillion cells in your body that make up who you are, that give you the color of your eyes. The Gospels go on to say that he knows every single one of the hairs on our head. You don't need to make the joke. I realize that he knew my hairs when they were more plentiful than they are today. But the point of what he's trying to say is, is he is intimately and emotionally acquainted with us. And here's why this matters. Here's why it's so important that God is familiar with us. Uh, You and I, at some point in time, come face to face with critical identity questions. Things uh, in, in the night where our souls are wrestling and we're trying to figure out what in the world life's about, why we matter. How many of you have noticed uh, as you watch TV or maybe browse through the internet, uh, the overwhelming amount of ancestry or ethnic uh, ethnic history or DNA services that are being offered, whether it be at uh, your genealogy, like it seems like it's a huge industry now to find out where you came from, who you are, like what your lineage is, you know, were you Irish, did you come from Australia, Africa, whatever the situation may be. Why do you think these exist? Here's the, here's the deal. Like people who are smart in business realize that they need to try to find products that people desire. And apparently, all across our world, in our culture, people have a desire, an innate desire to want to know where do they come from. Because we believe if we can understand where we come from, it'll help us answer questions like, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What is my purpose? Like everyone wants to know the answer to these questions. To know God as Father answers these most significant questions in our life. Today, I mean, we barely even use our name. If you go anywhere today, they want to know, what's the last four digits of your social security number? Uh, I mean, the last four digits of your phone number, please. Uh, what's your four-digit PIN number? Like, we don't even have a name anymore. Like, well, my name's Brett. I don't care about your name. Just, can you just give me these last digits? Everybody wants to know your driver's license number. You go to college, you're in uh, the university, you get a college ID, and this is the number student you are. We're just these numbers in a database system to do transactions. We've been reduced to that. Man, if you go to the grocery store, you go to one of these places, you want to get some baked goods for Christmas, you know, you take a, you take a number, and, the, and they just call your number. That's not the case with our Heavenly Father. No, he formed you in the inward parts of your mother's womb. You were fearfully and wonderfully made by him. Your Heavenly Father is intimately familiar with every single part of you. He knows your longings. He knows your desires. He knows your fears. He knows your anxieties. He knows the things that bring you great joy. He knows every single part of you. Now, for those of you who are like me, for a moment that washes over and you're filled with great joy about that. And then you go, oh my gosh, he knows everything about us. He knows all my thoughts, not just the good ones, but also the corrupt ones, which makes it really great news that not only is he forever familiar with us, but he's also forever loving towards us. David says that he crowns you He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. That as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those that fear him. As a father shows compassion, the old King James says, as a father pitieth. Now, we think of pity in a negative term, but it would have been a very uh, affirming term because it's describing how God 
is emotionally invested. He is connected. He deeply cares for those who fear him. Now, the imagery here in the Hebrew text, I think, is really important. This idea of crowning us with steadfast love. Uh, Not only does the term crowning mean that there's this great king that bestows and grants us love, but the word crowning in the Hebrew scripture meant to encircle, to encompass around something or someone. And the expression steadfast love, it doesn't just say love, but it says steadfast love to denote this ever faithful love. If you're writing a paraphrase of this passage, I think you could say this, that he wraps us up in a never-ending love. You ever had just a big old huge bear hug from like somebody who really loves you? Like how good that can feel when when you're really discouraged? Literally what the psalmist is trying to say is, is that God in his infinite greatness wraps us up in his love. To further make the point, David says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. This is the way the ancients would describe the universe of the stars. Literally, what David is saying is, is imagine the furthest point in the universe. And that is the only way he can communicate the greatness and the grandness of God's love towards you and towards me. And the evidence, the evidence of this love is that the Father is also forever forgiving, who forgives all of your iniquity. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now, it's important not to read this. And have the mistaken idea that God is not concerned with sin, namely our sin. He isn't just overlooking it and saying, hey, it's the sin thing, no big deal, I got this. Now, that's, that would be Santa Claus. Now, we understand these verses in the context of God's character. Now, let's be honest. For a brief moment, we might like the notion that God would not be concerned with sin. He would just overlook it. Like, especially if we're self-aware enough to realize how far we fall and how much we miss the mark. We might, in a moment, realize that sometimes we get angry, sometimes we do horrible things, and we would be great with the notion that God would just overlook and not care about sin. But deep down, we realize, too, that we would ultimately have a problem with that kind of God. Because we're created in the image of God, because we're hardwired with his attributes, the good of him in us, we have an instinctive desire for justice, right? Lately, it's been hard to watch the news for a number of reasons. Uh, significant among those reasons is what seems to be an unending number of people who have been exposed uh, as being sexually violent perpetrators, particularly against women. Can you imagine if uh, the consensus among the companies when this was revealed or amongst local law enforcement was that, hey, you know, it's no big deal. 
Uh, let's just, you know, let's give them a pass. Let bygones be bygones. No, we would, we would be outraged. And when that has happened in recent weeks, it has created outrage and deeply and rightfully so. Sometimes Hollywood and entertainment comes along and kind of uh, because, uses entertainment and unintentionally maybe brings attention to an issue. Uh, that happened with human trafficking. Uh, that's, that's pretty widespread and understood that today uh, women and children primarily, but also sometimes men are trafficked for their work or for sex. And we hate that. And the thing that, one of the things that really kind of brought that to the public's attention was the movie Taken with Liam Neeson. I don't know how many of you have seen that, probably a lot of you. For those of you trying to recall it, uh, when you hear somebody say, I've got a special set of skills, they're quoting Liam Neeson. We, Liam's pretty awesome in most movies. Uh, so in this movie, though, and it's been out for a long time, so you can't write without a spoiler alert here. Uh, Liam Neeson's daughter uh, goes off to France kind of as a post-high school getaway trip. She's kidnapped, and uh, what the kidnappers don't realize is they uh, kidnapped Aslan's daughter and also the man who trained Obi-Wan Kenobi, and you should never do that. Uh, And so... Liam does what a dad with that kind of skills would do. He tracks down his daughter. And towards the end of the movie, he finds her on the selling block at a slave trading site. And he comes face to face with the perpetrators of this act of evil. And the man looks to Liam and just says, It's not personal, it's just business. And when you watch that movie and you hear that, like your hair stands up on the back of your neck, rage begins to flood, and you just can't wait for him to destroy him. There is anger in you because you know that it's not just business, that it's evil, and justice needs to be done, and that's righteous. And Isaiah tells us, that hope and light come into the world in the Messiah to win the victory, that light is dawning for those that darkness, that hope for those who are hopeless. But Isaiah also tells us how it happens. The next major Christian holiday will come around Good Friday and Easter. And we can also go back to Isaiah because while in Isaiah chapter 2, 7, and 9, is, is the most significant highlights of the Messiah being born. You get to the end of Isaiah, and he begins to tell how this servant king, how this Messiah, how this everlasting father will win that freedom, will win that hope. And in Isaiah 53, he writes this, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And God, the Lord, has laid on him, Jesus the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. And the just, righteous nature of God means that the just and deserved wrath for sin must be satisfied. 
that for God to be just and righteous, it must be done. And here is what Isaiah is telling us. Here is what the Gospels tell us, is that Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God so that he could, as a forever father, lovingly forgive us. Just a few short years ago, the story of George Tyson uh, went worldwide. George was a carpenter who lived uh, a little bit north of Manchester, Manchester, across the pond in the UK, and had patiently cared for his mentally disabled son for over 30 years. And the stories about George are that the, the favorite thing for him and his son Gary to do were to go on long walks, especially on Sunday afternoons. And uh, just a couple of years ago on a Sunday afternoon, like today, they were out on a walk. And George noticed that there was an out-of-control car coming at a high rate of speed and that it was going to hit his son. And so he did what a lovingly uh, forever father would do as he pushed his disabled son out of the way and received the full impact of the car. And he died instantly. And as I was reflecting on that story, I looked at about six or seven different news outlets reporting of that and almost every headline said the same thing. Almost every headline said, loving dad sacrifices his life for his son. And like we get that, right? That if our son, healthy, disabled, whatever the care, was in the pathway of a Korean car, that we would throw our child out of the way and receive the death sentence so that they could be saved. Jesus, the Messiah, the forever Father, has done for us what we could not and cannot do for ourselves. That there was a out-of-control, high rate of speed judgment heading towards us, but in our place, he pushes us out of the way, and he receives it. And in, our, in place of our sin, he gives us his righteousness. Now, the story of Jesus is even greater than the story of George Tyson because in the gospel, the young man who went to prison for manslaughter, Jesus also pays for his penalty. That's the extravagant, extraordinary grace that Isaiah is saying to a people who are not in bondage because some big power came. They're in bondage because for centuries they were idolatrous. For centuries they could give a rip about wonderful counselor, a rip about mighty God, a rip about everlasting father. They worshiped idols and worshiped themselves and were self-focused and self-centered and wanted to just be Epicureans. And yet God said, I know. And I don't, I'm not just going to kind of glance over it. But I'm going to send a child to be born a savior, to do for you what you can't do for yourself. He knows us, he loves us, and he forgives us. There's no time of year, like Christmas time, maybe Valentine's, when people long for love more than this time of year. And I'm here to tell you today that you will never ever experience a love like that of Jesus Christ 
You can search for this love in a lot of places. You can try to find it in a lot of different people, in a lot of different things, but you will always be disappointed. But you will not be disappointed in this forever father. He will always be there. He will always be present. He loves you more than you can even imagine because none of us can even grasp the nature as high as the heavens are among the earth. None of us can even see or imagine the end of the universe. The east and the west, they never meet. And despite our incredible advances in technology, we cannot even go to the bottom depths of the sea. And what God says is, my love surpasses all of that for you. I know you. I love you. I have forgiven you. And that's what he wants for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so good to be able to start prayer off and call you dad, call you father. We are so grateful today that you not only love us, that you not only know us, but that you forgive us that you have come near to us so that we could be near to you, that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And today, no matter who's in the room, no matter their experience with their father, whether it was really great and positive and present or whether it was disappointing and created longing, that everyone under the sound of my voice today can know with great confidence that you love them, that you're for them, and you've come to be near them. We're so grateful, Lord, that you're a good dad to us. In Jesus' name, amen.